Good morning, saints. Great job, Glenda. That was a long passage. It seems to me the last time we had 40-some verses read, it was you as well. That's what you get for being good at it, right? It's like you always punish the proficient with more work. Uh, Bibles are open to Acts chapter 10. We're going to go through the entire verse, the entire chapter. So without any further ado, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. Your spirit and your blessing that is commanded where brothers dwell together in unity. Your spirit that inhabits the praises of your people. Your spirit that reveals Jesus to us by illumining scriptures. These scriptures that are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so now we set aside all the busyness of the week and all of those anxieties and concerns that are competing for our attention. And we surrender to the work of your spirit. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 10. There are two key verses that we are going to work our way toward and zero in on, so have a quick look at them. Uh, Verse 34. Does anything stand out to you in verse 34? Peter's words, God shows no partiality. That's one key verse. A second key verse is later in verse 36. Jesus is Lord of all. So those are our two key verses. Um, In verses 1 to 16, we see a real inflection point in all of Scripture. Do you know what I mean by an inflection point? This is a vital shift in God's redemptive work in history. This is a very important passage. I actually think R.C. Sproul once said it's the most important passage in the New Testament, if not the entire Bible. Over the course of this sermon, we need to begin by doing some heavy lifting and some spade work, okay? We need to roll up our sleeves and really get at it, and then we're going to apply it. So stick with me, right? My grade three teacher always used to say, flip your brains on, and let's jump in. Look at verses one to eight. We are told about Cornelius in verses one to two. It says that he lived in Caesarea. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. We're told his job title there in verse 1. This man was a man of elevated status. As a centurion, that was either literal, he was a soldier who oversaw a hundred other soldiers, or by this point in history, the word centurion had also just been attached to men who had reached a high rank in the military. So we're told his job. Look at verse 2. We're told about his character. And he's introduced with four positive descriptions. We're told that he is devout. We're told that he fears God and leads his entire household in devotion. Thirdly, we're told that he gives alms. And fourthly, that he prays continually. Look, before we get into the meat of this passage, we can't pass too quickly over Cornelius because he is an example to us all. He's a pattern for us. How do you think about yourself? Well, let's ask a different question. How do you introduce yourself? Let's say you meet someone for the first time, 
It's a curious thing about our culture that one of the very first things that we do when we meet someone is to ask them, what? What do they do for a living? That's right. That's your job. It's not that way in other parts of the world. A little while ago, Monty and I were in Belize, and it was actually notable that our entire time in Belize, no one ever asked us what we did for work. Right? That was considered impolite. It was crass. But how do you think about yourself? That's one of the ways that you introduce yourself, and we often lead with our job. Cornelius Centurion. How do other people think of you? If someone were to set out to describe you, what would they say? Well, I think that says something of your character. The things that are lasting. Well, these things that are listed of Cornelius are good things to aim at as far as it relates to our character. Devout, fear God, lead your household appropriately, give generously, and pray. So this is Cornelius, verses 1 to 2. Look at verses 3 to 6. Cornelius sees a vision of the angel of the Lord. What does the angel of the Lord say to him? Verse 4. He says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So this angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius and tells him two things. He says, your prayers have been answered and your alms have been remembered. Two things to note on that. The first one is that prayers and almsgiving are somehow aligned. Now, we have to be really, really careful with this one. This has been perverted in the church in the West in recent times into something that's labeled the prosperity gospel. This is not true. This is the perversion of this truth. They will tell you that if you give enough money, God will answer your prayers. If only we preached that, right? We'd have the mortgage paid off. But anyway, it's not true. That's not how it works. You have to be careful not to fall into that error, but yet there is something that aligns prayer and giving to the work of the Lord generously. What is that? Well, it would seem in this case and in many others in Scripture that a generous heart on our behalf, when we bring that to bear before the Lord, we see prayers answered. I don't think that that's because our generous heart manipulates God into our agenda. I think instead it's because our generous heart is more malleable to be aligned to his will. You see how that works? And so the first thing that Cornelius is told by the angel of the Lord, he says, your prayers have been answered, your alms have been remembered by God. There's an alignment between prayer and generosity, giving to the work of the Lord. The second thing to note in that is that the alms that you give to the work of the Lord are remembered by God. Okay, here's what that means. It means that when you give to a particular project in the ministry of the church, in one sense you're giving to make that project possible and happen, but in a deeper sense you're actually giving to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Your alms have been remembered, Cornelius is told, by the Lord. And so Cornelius is described as a God-fearer. Let's hang on to that for a moment. We're going to pick that up in, in just a second. He sees a vision, he hears a voice, and he heeds it. And so Cornelius organizes some guys from his household in Caesarea, and he sends them to Joppa to bring Peter back to Caesarea. You remember Peter right now is chilling in Joppa. This is right after he has raised Tabitha to life. And so he's still there. Look at verses 9 to 23. In verses 9 to 10, we're told that as these men are leaving, obedient to Cornelius, who's being obedient to God, they're on their way from Caesarea to Joppa. The very next day, as these guys were approaching the city, Peter has a life-altering vision of his own. All right, here's the scene. So Peter is praying on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. Do you remember Simon the Tanner? He was introduced to us back at the end of chapter 9 with a passing comment that Peter was going to hang out in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house. We see in this account that Peter is up on the rooftop praying, and it's around noon. That's the time of day. So if you are a man in particular, what happens around noon? You get hungry. If you're a young man, you get hangry. And so Peter, presumably, is up here on the roof, and he's getting hungry. The challenge is that he's living in the house of Simon the Tanner. And Simon the Tanner is a phrase that um, we really have to look at closely if we're going to understand what's going on here. You see, Peter was a devout Jew. And as a devout Jew, there were all kinds of rules and regulations about what he could eat and what he couldn't eat, what he could touch and what he couldn't touch, where he could stay and where he couldn't stay. Simon the Tanner, by virtue of his occupation, was perpetually unclean. He dealt in the trade of corpses. His hands were constantly touching dead animals. And so he was unclean. So now you're starting to feel the pinch, right? Peter's hanging out at Simon the Tanner's house. It's noon. He's getting hungry. And he's got a crisis on his hands. He's like, man, I'm getting so hungry, but there's nothing in this house that I could possibly eat. Everything here is unclean. It's Simon the Tanner's house. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, and if you have, you don't have to admit to it, but have you ever spent the night in a friend's home and that friend kept their house like a pigsty? And you just had that, like, uneasy feeling, like, ich. That's the ich that Peter's feeling here. Nothing in this house is edible. Simon is touching corpses all day long, and my stomach is hanging like an empty sack. We're told that Peter falls into a trance. Verse 11, the heavens open above him. A large, I don't know, I picture like a picnic blanket descends out of heaven, and it's covered in food, but verse 12 tells us that everything that's on there is unclean. 
just further compounds Peter's problem. Verse 13. A vision appears to Peter, and the voice of the Lord says to him, Rise up, kill, and eat. Now I... I want you to note that these words from the voice of the Lord here to Peter are the very same words that Peter spoke over the course of his ministry. Do you remember that? What did Peter say to the man at the gate beautiful? Rise up. What did he say to Tabitha? Rise up. And yet the irony of this is that Peter says those words to Aeneas, to Tabitha, to the man at the gate, beautiful. They have faith. They rise up. But Peter is not so willing to rise up, even when it's the Lord telling him himself. You know, I love Peter. As you read through the gospel accounts and through Acts, you see a man who was willful and stubborn and thick-headed and got it wrong, and yet he was an apostle. I mean, just the utter foolishness of disobeying the voice of the Lord, right? The Lord says, rise up. And Peter's like, no, by no means, Lord, verse 14. But before you're too hard on Peter, you've got to empathize with him. Put yourself in his sandals. He's been a Jew his whole life. But now God tells him to eat food that he's never eaten before. You know, I, the weight of this is lost on us sometimes. You've got to understand that this voice from the Lord is telling Peter to partake in a practice that he has avoided his entire life because it was the very thing that differentiated him from those people who were not chosen by God, or so he thought. In fact, we're going to see that the very thing that differentiates us from people who are not chosen by God is the fear of the Lord, but let's get to that in a moment. So verses 15 to 16 unfold, and three times, three times, the voice of the Lord has to come to Peter and tell him, rise up, kill, and eat. By no means, Lord. Rise up, kill, and eat. By no means, Lord. Rise up, kill, and eat. By no means, Lord. Three times. Does that sound familiar? It seems like Peter always needs three times to get it. Right? When the resurrected Jesus appears to Peter on the beach in John 21, and he's like, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my lambs. All right, verses 17 to 23. Peter... um, He didn't get it immediately, right? He took him three times. He's still sort of struggling with this. But we see in verses 17 to 23 that there were two things that helped Peter to gain clarity. The first one was the passage of some time. And the second one was the counsel of others. And you know, friends, I think this is again a lesson for us. This is a paradigm that we can follow. The first thing to note in this is that changing your mind is not easy. Especially on matters that you hold most dear. 
When we live our lives according to one pattern of being, one pattern of thought, it's not easy to then change because you've spent perhaps 10, 20, 30, 40, 80 years reinforcing those patterns of thought and they become something like ruts to a wheel that you just easily slide into and coast along in and when you try to change your mind it's like trying to pull a, a tire out of like a six inch rut. It's not easy to change your mind. Christian man or woman, perhaps you've been a Christian for a brief time or a long time and there are still matters that you struggle with allowing the Spirit of God to change your mind. It takes the passage of time. It takes the work of the Spirit. If you're going to grow in grace and clarity in the gospel, you will find that um, it doesn't happen like a light switch, right? Sanctification is a process. It takes your entire life to appropriate the lordship of Jesus and the good news of the gospel to every area of your thoughts, your affections, and your actions. It takes time. And just when you think you have it cornered, then the Holy Spirit reveals another area that's not yet surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. It took Peter time to change his mind. And it takes time for the Spirit of God to progressively change ours and conform us into the image of Christ. So Peter's mind is changed over the course of time. Secondly, Peter's mind is changed through the counsel of others. These men who come from Caesarea to Joppa, they recount the story to him, and, and that seems to be the tipping point. Here we see that if we are going to have our minds changed by the Holy Spirit to come ever more clearly under the Lordship of Jesus, we need not only the passage of time with the work of the Spirit, but we need the counsel of others. Let me say it more pointedly. You cannot be an isolated Christian. One of the things that grieved me most over the years of COVID restrictions was to see how individual people, yes, people in our own church, fell away from Christ because they weren't gathering regularly to receive the counsel of others. They found themselves in isolated situations with, God forbid, eternal consequences. To be a Christian man or woman requires the counsel and fellowship and companionship of others. It's just the way God designed it. Those are two things that help Peter to change his mind in verses 17 to 23. Verses 24 to 33, the account unfolds. Peter arrives at Cornelius' house in Caesarea. He's greeted by Cornelius. And here's a really interesting one, okay? Easy to read over quickly, but actually really matters. He's greeted by Cornelius and all of Cornelius' family and close friends. You see, what's happening here is that Cornelius wants 
what he has for his entire sphere of influence. And so when Peter's coming to town, Cornelius gathers together everyone that's under the span of his responsibility. Everyone that's in his sphere of influence. His family and his closest friends. Because he wants them to hear the gospel. Well, that should force us to ask the question, who has the Lord brought into my life? For whom am I responsible before the Lord? Family? Close friends? Do I actively gather them around the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do I just take a passive role as though I don't have a responsibility to them and for them? Well, in verse 24, we see that Cornelius did not take a passive role. He called together his relatives and close friends. So should we. Verses 25 to 26. So Cornelius seems like a great guy, right? God-fearer, devout, prays, give alms, leads his family, evangelizes his friends. But even God-fearing Cornelius gets it wrong. Look at verse 25 and 26. Peter comes and he falls down and starts worshiping Peter. And Peter's like, yeah, no. Uh, don't do that. Verses 27 to 33. Um, Peter and Cornelius, then they uh, share and they share their stories. They compare notes and they get caught up. This is a picture of true Christian fellowship. Gathering together to talk about what the Lord has done. That's what really matters. We get to verse 34, and we see that Peter finally gets it. The penny has dropped. He opens his mouth and he says what in verse 34? Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Verse 35. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then verses 36 to 43, Peter goes on and preaches the good news of Jesus to everyone that's gathered. And his point is to elaborate on and narrow in upon the truth that God shows no partiality and that every nation belongs to him, those who fear God. Well, what does this mean then to fear the Lord? I'd suggest to you this morning that to fear the Lord means to embrace Jesus and his promise of forgiveness. Look, Peter is getting at something here in Holy Scripture that we also know is true from our own experience. That when the Holy Spirit of God comes to us in our unbelief and awakens us, when the Holy Spirit comes to us in our dead state and our trespasses and sins, he begins with the conviction of sin. 
the fear of the Lord. I'm reading an autobiography from John Bunyan. You guys know who John Bunyan is? Wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. Well, his autobiography is entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in it, he tells this account that I think most of us as Christians could tell, and it's this, that when he was a young man, he spent those many years of his life in sin and in debauchery, never giving a single thought to his own soul or to his sinful state. He had no fear of the Lord. It was only when the Holy Spirit began to work in John Bunyan causing him to be born again, that he gave any care to the fact that he was a sinner bound for hell. See, the very first thing that the Spirit of God does is to bring us to this knowledge of our sin and conviction, the fear of the Lord. That's why Proverbs 9 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's what's truly wise. I'm reading another biographical account of a man named Andrew Fuller. Do you guys know who Andrew Fuller was? No? He was an 18th century pastor and theologian. He was the founder of the Baptist Missionary Society. Um, Just this giant of a pastor and theologian. And in the 1700s, right around 1770, Andrew Fuller got really, really sick to the point that he thought he was going to die. Like back then, you could die from a cough, right? And so he thought he was going to die. And he wrote a letter to one of his friends and said this. He said, my mind is calm and tolerably happy. I know whom I have believed. I have no misgivings as to the ground on which I stand. All the misgivings I have regard myself. I am a poor, polluted creature and have been but an unprofitable servant. I could have no hope but in a Savior who came to save the chief of sinners. Look, what Peter has revealed to him in this chapter is that God's people are not delineated by the food that they eat and by dietary restrictions and laws. The thing that is the watershed is Do you fear the Lord God or not? And if you fear him, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and you belong to Jesus, convicting you of your sin. Fear is a work of the Spirit in those whom God saves, and it's evidence that God has set his affection upon you from before the foundation of the world. It's evidence that he will save you. So you might be thinking, fear? Really, R.D.? And the answer is yes from Scripture, really fear. I want to just take a moment to think about that fear, okay, that delineates you, the fear of the Lord that delineates you as a Christian. First, we've said that it is the very first thing that God does to you. He brings you to life. He causes you to be convicted of sin, in that you fear the Lord. We often think of fear as something that is um, disproportionate or unnecessary and is paralyzing. 
So if you were sitting here in church this morning and you were paralyzed with fear, you refused to go outside any of the doors because there's a lion outside, well, that would be a silly fear. That would be the opposite of wisdom. That would be you squandering your life and wasting it in some fear that you fabricated in your mind. Unless there was a lion outside. And then the fear that you have for it is actually wise and appropriate. And that's how the fear of the Lord works. We're told that it's good and wise because it pushes us and presses us into good thoughts, good affections, and good actions. The absence of the fear of the Lord is folly. We need to fear the right things. And so we see in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is a legitimate fear for all who sin and rebel against him. If you've spent your entire life um, trusting in yourself and rebelling against God, then the fear that you fear towards God is a work of the Spirit. That fear and that fear alone will strip you of any sense of goodness on your own and it will cause you to turn to and cling to and trust in Jesus. That's the fear of the Lord that Peter's talking about. So then Peter goes on in verse 34 and he doesn't just leave them at the fear of the Lord, but then he goes on and he explicates and applies the gospel, the good news. Verses 37 to 43, Peter preaches not only the sole remedy for fear, but the best news. That God saves all who fear him from every nation by the sacrificial death of his son. That's why he says in verse 35, every nation, those who fear God, and do what is right and acceptable to him. Those are the people that God shows no partiality against. Now, those two things are written in that order for a reason. Fear the Lord and do what is right and acceptable to him. Because they're written not only in order of priority, they're written in order of sequence. Far too many people think that um, the Christian life is all about doing the right things and not doing the wrong things, and that's what it's principally about. But for the Christian man or woman, what we do stems from whom we fear, and in fear, whom we find loves us the Lord Jesus Christ, then it leads to action. Let me say it a different way. The Bible does not primarily tell you be good. It primarily tells you you are forgiven. 
that you are a sinner who deserves the wrath of God, and yet in Christ, God shows no partiality against you. From every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, God shows no partiality. All right, heavy lifting done. Let's take a couple of minutes to apply this. This is a passage. The first thing that I want us to apply is in verse 15. The voice of the Lord says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. This is this inflection point and this cusp in Scripture. It's so vitally important because in this moment, we see that there is actually a progression of God's self-revelation as we read through the Bible. This progression has forced Peter to change his mind. It's virtually impossible for Peter to accept that God has repealed these dietary laws. So what conclusions can we draw from this? Where the Lord says to Peter, what I have made clean, do not call uncommon or unclean. Well, the first thing that I want to guard against here is actually a, an erroneous use of this passage. Okay? Some people in our culture and some people in some so-called churches point to this passage and they say that because of this passage, we can see and assume that God embraces everything all the time without any distinction. Do you, do you read this passage and say, well, God repealed the dietary laws. Therefore, now everything goes. There are no longer any distinctions. Well, there's a Greek word for that, and that's nope. That's not, that's not what it means. As Christians, we have to be rigorous in terms of how we read, study, and apply the Bible. What it means is when we come to a passage like this, where we see God's self-revelation progressing within the bounds of Scripture, and something like this happens, now hear this, we need to go as far as Scripture, but never further. Okay, that's, that's really, really important when you read this passage. This is a crucial qualifier and proviso in this statement. Where has the distinction and the partiality been removed? On those things that God has made clean. Those things therefore bear no more distinction or partiality. Okay, let me make this really pointed and uncomfortable for a moment. Does this mean that there are now no distinctions to be made by God for things like sexual preferences, as they're called in the world, or sexual perversions and sins, as they're called in Scripture? Should they just all be overlooked? Everything goes. Not at all. If we're going to get at these questions, friends, we need a good biblical hermeneutic. Let me tell you what hermeneutic means. We need to rigorously adopt a way of reading Scripture 
that allows the Bible to speak in a way that is coherent from beginning to end and on its own terms. And in order to do that, we need to be able to resolve things like the Old Testament law. Why is it that we keep some of those things that you read in the Old Testament law and we don't observe others? Why is it that we no longer sacrifice bulls? Why is it that women no longer sacrifice a pigeon once a month? Why is it that we eat shellfish? Why is it that we wear blended fabrics in our clothing? Why is it that we, we do all those things, but yet we still read the Old Testament law as it relates to morality, and we think that those ones still matter? Well, let me give you the hermeneutic to apply. It's because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. And he fulfills the two aspects of the law differently. There is the ceremonial law. And there is the moral law. For Jesus to have fulfilled the ceremonial law means that when he died on the cross and declared it is finished... All of those sacrificial, all of those ceremonial, all of those dietary laws, they just serve to foreshadow and point ahead to that moment. They no longer need to be observed. Ceremonial law. But the moral laws, we read Jesus himself saying in Matthew chapter 5, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even think about it in your mind, it's as good as you've done it. See, while there is a fulfillment of the ceremonial law, which means that we no longer observe it, the fulfillment of the moral law is that there has actually been a narrowing of the moral law as we move through Scripture. That's why in the Old Testament, you read the progression from polygamy to monogamy. And in no place in Scripture does God ever declare perversion clean. So neither can you. You see the logic? Okay, that's the first thing. Don't, don't misuse this passage. But there's more to it than that. When the Lord says to Peter... Um, what God has made clean do not call common. There is an application to your own soul. Because Peter's vision here is not actually about food, it's about people. Food was the visible barrier that separated people from the covenants of God. And so in this vision to Peter, God declares the food clean, and so the people who are associated with that food are deemed to be clean as well. I want you to consider the implications of this for a moment. You got ham-eating Cornelius, right? This guy who by every measure, even though he's a God-fearer, he's outside of the people of God. He's outside of Israel. And late in this chapter, he is declared to be made clean by God. 
God removes his impurities and adopts Cornelius into his family. Well, the same thing is true for you and for me. God declares you clean in Jesus. We are all born with the stain of original sin. We are all filthy before God. And if that wasn't enough, we then go on to follow the exact same patterns of sinful distrust of God that caused original sin with our forefathers, Adam and Eve. We are guilty, we are filthy, we are dirty, marred by sin. And yet when the Holy Spirit of God is at work in you, bringing you to new life, awakening you, showing you that sin and convicting you, he brings you to see the beauty of Jesus. He causes you to be regenerate and born again. And he makes you clean before God. God has removed all of your impurities and adopted you into his family. When God looks at you, it isn't just that he's removed all of the impurities up to the point of your profession and your baptism. He's removed all of those, but then you'd better keep things clean moving forward. God in Jesus has declared you to be clean because he's granted you the very righteousness of Christ. He knows that as long as you're on this earth, sin will continue to be a battle and a war for you. But when he looks at you, he no longer sees the filth of your sin. He sees you clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means that God declares you clean. Now, friends, this is, this is really important. What God has made clean, don't ever call unclean or common. And that counts for when you look in the mirror. Satan, the accuser, tries to tell you of all of your sin and rob you of your assurance. But what God has made and declared clean, don't ever call unclean. Your assurance is not found in yourself, right? It's found in the God who declares you clean, makes you clean in Jesus Christ. So the Christian man or woman says, what God has declared clean, I'll never call unclean. What he says is, um, not I, but Christ. Remember, that was Andrew Fuller's quote. He thought he was going to die, and he said, I could list off all of the things that should make me feel not confident, but my confidence isn't in myself, it's in my Savior. So that's the first thing. What God has declared clean, don't call unclean. Don't, don't abuse that passage. Go as far as Scripture, but never beyond it but also make sure that you apply it to your own soul. Okay, the second key verse, verse 36, Jesus is Lord of all. Now this is 
the central tenet of Christianity, Jesus is Lord. The only reason any of this works is because he is Lord. Jesus and Jesus alone gets to declare what is clean and unclean. Desires, affections, practices, people. And as we said, while his word does, pro, does contain a progression, we can never go beyond the progression that is caught in the bounds of Scripture. When we do so, we make ourselves Lord instead of making Jesus Lord. So this morning, friends, pray that God would grant you the fear of the Lord so that you can run to him for forgiveness. When he grants you the fear of the Lord, welcome it. Because at the end of the fear of the Lord is found a confident and assured salvation in Christ. The fear of the Lord that God will grant you is the only thing that will strip away all of your delusions and all of your other false idols that your confidence has been found in. Passage closes, verse 44, the Spirit falls on all who hear the word. Verse 45, reinforced the same point, even on the Gentiles, right? Even those guys. Verse 47 and 48, they were all baptized and they began a new life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that takes that word, applies it to our lives, to our minds, to our hearts, convicting us of sin, confirming us in goodness, Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who has yet to experience a holy fear of the Lord. They've been living their life oblivious to their sin and their offense before you. God, would you even now grant them that conviction, not to lead them to despair, but that they would then turn to Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, I pray also for those here this morning who have been robbed of their assurance by the evil one, reminding them of sin and trying to rob them of who they are in Christ, telling them you are unclean, you don't belong, you're a fraud. God, I pray that they would hear these words that you spoke to Peter. Do not call unclean things that God has declared clean. And that they would apply that to their own souls. Not because of any virtue that they hold, but because you are a faithful Savior who saves whom you will. Lord, we pray this all to the glory of your name. Amen.